First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. We are right in the middle of a teaching series called Family Matters, and the family does matter. It matters to God, who is the inventor of families. It matters to Him because He has placed us within families. It matters to God because the relationships that we have within our families were designed to point to some important eternal truths about our God. Russ Moore reminds us in his book, The Storm-Tossed Family, That marriage isn't just about companionship or procreation, but it is a mystery pointing to the one flesh union of Christ and his church. He writes, parenting isn't just about human flourishing, although it is that, but it's a reflection of the fatherhood of God and the motherhood of the holy city to which we belong in Christ. And because that is the case, because our Family relationships were designed to point to something beyond themselves, to the God who made us, the God who died to save us. That's why Moore says the demonic powers rage in fury against the family order. And there is no question that that is what we are seeing today, that the family is under attack, that sons and daughters are being attacked. That men and women, that moms and dads are being attacked. That the very definition of the family is being attacked. But out of all the relationships in the family that are under attack today, it is the marriage relationship that I believe is most under siege. And that's because Satan knows that the marriage relationship is, by God's design, the foundation of the family. And so after spending the last couple of weeks primarily talking about parenting, uh, today in this Family Matters series, we're going to talk about that most important relationship in the home, the relationship between husbands and wives. Of course, I know that there are many in our church family who are not uh, married at this time, but uh, many of you will one day be in the future, or you are growing up in the home of married parents or you are surrounded by married friends that you know and love and of course in the end whether we marry in this life or perhaps marry again in this life or not marriage does matter to all of us who know Christ because as we just talked about human marriage is a living illustration built into the created order of a marriage that if we know Christ we are all a part of the marriage between Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. And we know what Revelation 21 teaches us, church, that at the end of this age, all of us who know Christ have not been invited to a birthday party or a graduation party. We've been invited to a wedding party to celebrate forever with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so as we think about marriage today, as we think about why it matters so much in the family, uh, let's all go back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter of the Bible. 
And let's read what God says there about marriage. Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. And we read this. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, your perfect word. We thank you, Father, for how it speaks to us, how it reminds us of the very foundation of the family, the foundation of the marriage relationship that you have created and given. And Father, you know the unique family circumstances of every single one of us in this room. You know where we've come from and where we've been. You know what our family looks like today. And so, Father, we pray that as only you can, by your Spirit, that you would take your word and you would speak to each of our hearts where we are. Father, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, I trust that there will be some application here for everyone, but I am, of course, thinking especially today about who this passage talks about, which is husbands and wives. And so for those of us who are married, as we go through this passage today, there are five questions that I believe the Lord would have us ask ourselves along the way. And here's the first question. Let's ask ourselves this. Do I view marriage itself as good, and my spouse as God's good gift to me? Do I view marriage itself as good and my spouse as God's good gift to me? You know, as you read through the account of God creating the world, creating everything in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you hear the Lord assessing after every day of creation what he had made. And after every day, at the end of that day, it says that the Lord saw what he had made and declared it was good. And in the very last verse of chapter 1, verse 31, this is after the sixth day of creation, it said God looked at everything that he had made and declared that it was very good. And so after reading this time and time again, it was good, it was good, it was very good. It's startling when you come to verse 18 of chapter 2 and you read these words. And the Lord God said, it is not good. This is the first time that the Lord said that about anything. It's the first time he said that anything wasn't good in his creation. And what he said wasn't good was the fact that Adam was alone. And so God said that he would make Adam a helper comparable to him. And so after hearing that, you expect that in the very next verse, that is what God will do. But 
it isn't quite yet. In fact, what you read about in the next couple of verses is Adam as God's first zookeeper. And God brings all of the animals before Adam, and he uh, tasks Adam with giving each of the animals a name and beginning to exercise the dominion over the created order that we read about in chapter 1. And yet I believe that even in this task, God has a purpose. That he had a purpose in causing Adam to name all of these animals before he created the woman and brought her to him. You see, up until this point, even though God recognizes that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, I don't think Adam gets that yet. I don't even think Adam knows what it means to be alone, right? As far as he knows, everything is fine in this paradise that God has placed him in. And yet in this process of seeing all the animals come before him and presumably seeing at least some of them go off in pairs, Adam begins to realize, I don't have a pair. I don't have a a match. And, And God is beginning to create in Adam's heart a sense of longing, a desire for companionship that God was about to fulfill. And it's interesting how God goes about fulfilling that. In verse 21, we read, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And so you think of all the ways that God could have gone about creating the woman, and yet this is how he chooses to do it. He chooses to have Adam lie down on the bed and he puts one of those white hospital gowns on him and a little blue cap on his head and he has him breathe a little happy juice, right? And says, count down from five. And Adam says, five, four. And before he gets to three, Adam's out, right? This is the first surgery performed under general anesthesia anywhere in the world. And while Adam was under, so to speak, God takes one of his ribs and uses it to form the woman. Now, why did God do that? Could God uh, not have taken the dust of the ground and breathed into it the breath of life and created Eve in the very same way that he created Adam? Of course, he could have. Could God not have just spoken her into existence as he did with other elements of creation? Of course, he has the power to do that. And so why is it that God uh, forms Adam from this rib and forms Eve from this rib in Adam's side. I think there's a lot of reasons why God did it this particular way. Paul teaches us in 1 Timothy 2 and elsewhere that the order of creation does point to the different roles that God has given to men and women in the home and in the church as well. But I don't think that's the entire reason. We also see here that Eve was created from the very same stuff, as it were, that Adam was created from. This is why Adam, when he sees her, says those words in verse 23. This is now bone of my bone. This is now flesh of my flesh. In other words, she was the helper that was comparable to him, that was corresponding to him. Some people take offense at that phrase in verse 20 where it says that the woman God made was a helper comparable to Adam. And they take that to imply that Eve was somehow inferior to Adam or subservient to Adam, but that's not the case at all. 
Now again, we do read in Scripture that there are different roles that are given to men and to women. And Adam was given the responsibility to lead, just as husbands have been given that responsibility today. And we read that in Ephesians chapter 5. And actually we see that even in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, where the fall takes place and they fall into sin. And when God comes to the garden that day, even though Eve was the first one to sin, who was the one that God called to? God said, Adam, where are you? And he called Adam to account, and he held Adam responsible for the sin that both of them had committed. And yet with that said, back in chapter 2, this word helper is not a derogatory term at all. It doesn't mean that, that Eve was like the assistant to the regional manager or anything like that, right? It, it really means that God saw that Adam needed help, That if Adam was going to be able to carry out the mission and the task that he had given him, that he needed help in order to do that. And I think God's been saying that about every man since, right? That boy needs help. Get him some help. And so he created someone who could help. He created someone who was comparable to him in every way. Someone who, as it says back in chapter 1, verse 27, was created in God's image every bit as much as the man was. And in reality, what this passage shows us is a mutual dependence that men and women have upon each other from the very beginning of creation. If you think about it, this first woman came from a man, and yet every man since has come from a woman. Now, we need each other, don't we? And we always, always have. I love verse 22 where it says basically that Adam woke up in the post-op recovery room still wearing the little blue cap and God walked in as the father of the bride more or less and he presented to Adam this woman that we call Eve. And now remember what it says in verse 25 that uh, they weren't wearing any clothes at this point and so if you look in the Hebrew text the first word that Adam says is yippee I think he liked what he saw. He said, God, I like what you have done here very, very much. But seriously, in verse 23, the first words were an exclamation. They were an exclamation of joy. In in fact, as one translation put it, the idea is this. This, at last, is one of my own. Bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. And it's immediately after that, in verse 24, that God institutes the covenant of human marriage, which continues to this day. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, it means, for one thing, that despite what our culture says about it, marriage itself, as God designed it, between one man and one woman for life is a good thing. That marriage is God's creation, it is God's Invention, it is God's idea, and because it is, and because God is good, marriage itself is good. And it isn't just marriage in general that is good, it is your marriage and my marriage specifically. You know, we often will use that expression, God is good all the time. If God is good all the time, then here's a question to consider Was God good in the giving of your spouse? To you. Right? If God is good all the time, then was he good in the giving of the spouse that you 
have. Yes, he was. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything they do is good or that everything that you do or I do is good. It isn't, and we'll talk more about that later. But nonetheless, God is good all the time, and he delights to give good gifts to his children. And you know what? We need to begin to view our spouses, the spouse that God has given to us as a gift from God to us because they are. I think that part of what makes it so hard to always do that, to view our spouses as gifts, is because of how different we are from one another. And God did not bring to Adam a clone of himself in the garden. God did not bring to Adam another man to be his friend in the garden, right? God brought to Adam a woman who was different from him, different in many, many ways. And I'm sure if you are married, it did not take you long to realize that the person you were married to was different, right? I mean, if wives, when you got married, you were probably thinking about your husband. I I didn't know that that many bodily sounds and noises could emanate from one human being. How is that possible? Right? You were probably thinking, why is it that any game that involves a ball that is on TV, that we have to totally rearrange our entire life in order to watch that game? There's going to be another one on tomorrow. And of course, as men, we're thinking, yes, there will be another one on tomorrow, and I want to see that one also. Right? Women are, wives are probably thinking, why are my husband's tools, these untouchable objects that are deified in our home that no one can touch but him? And as men, we feel that that's very self-explanatory, right? They are our tools, and we like them to stay where they are, so that when we need them, we can find them. And of course, as husbands, we're just as confused about the differences that we see in our wives. I'm sure, guys, the first time you watched a movie with your wife, you were probably thinking, why in the world is she crying right now? She doesn't even know these people. And she was probably thinking about you, what an insensitive jerk you are, because you weren't crying. She was, you have a heart of stone. I don't even know who you are right now. Whenever we go out shopping, husbands are thinking, why are we shopping right now when we don't even really know what we're even looking for? What are we doing out here? And your wife will tell you, I just like to look. I'm, I'm just looking. We're saying, if we're just looking, I'd rather be looking at the game at home that's on TV today, right? This is, and, and I know that these are stereotypes and not every marriage is this way. And maybe in your home, some of these things are actually the opposite of what I have described. But the reality is it did not take you long. It did not take me long to realize that our spouse is different, very much so, from us. And the problem is that we begin to go from saying everything they do is different to saying everything they do is wrong. But all the things that I've just talked about are not right and wrong things. They're just, just different. And God has made us different. That's a part of his plan. It's a part of his design. And we need to move to a place where we can thank God for those differences and thank God that he has brought into your life someone who is different from you, not a clone of you, someone who images God in a different way and glorifies God in a different way than you do. That's the first question we need to ask ourselves today. Do I view marriage itself as good and God's gift of my spouse as a good gift that he has given to me. Here's another question we need to ask ourselves. Do I treat my spouse in a way that shows that he or she is the most important human relationship 
that I have. You know, verse 24 does not actually record Adam talking. Jesus would later say that verses 24 and 25 are the words of God. This is God's commentary on this first marriage. This is what God says about marriage from the very beginning. And there's so much packed into this one little verse in verse 24. Look at it with me. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so here is God instituting the very foundation of the family. And and notice he does not bring a child to Adam and say, here is a child, here is your family, take care of him, take care of her. But rather, he brings a woman, a wife to him and says, here is your family. Now you go and be fruitful and multiply And in the Bible, the marriage relationship is where the family begins or where the family is meant to begin. By God's design, each new family unit begins with a marriage, a marriage between a man and a woman. In order for that to happen, in order for that marriage relationship to be formed, God says the first thing that needs to happen is that there is some leaving that needs to take place. Again, he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. You've probably heard the expression at one point or another, leave and cleave. To leave and to cleave or to be joined to your spouse. But before we can do that, we first have to leave. And that's really a remarkable thing when you think about it. All the way up until uh, the time in your life when you get married. The, The relationship that you have with your parents It's typically the most important relationship in life, and it's been that way since you were born. But once you are married, a decisive break takes place and indeed needs to take place. It doesn't mean that you no longer love your parents. It doesn't mean that you don't respect them or learn from them or have a relationship with them. (laughs) But what it does mean is that that relationship has been superseded by a more important one. Your relationship with your husband or with your wife is the foundation of your new family. And actually, this truth right here that's found all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 is one of the most common mistakes that couples, especially newlywed couples, will make. They fail to leave. And you can really fail to leave in a number of different ways. Some people fail to leave in very obvious ways. You know, they're dependent uh, on their parents uh, financially rather than depending on each other in the war. They depend on their parents emotionally. They still call, uh, you know, mom 187 times every day, right, to get their counsel on every life decision that needs to be made rather than consulting with each other and the Lord in order to make those decisions. So sometimes you can see that. And it's just very obvious that a couple has not left. But there's other times when it's maybe less obvious that a couple hasn't left. Sometimes couples fail to leave by imposing expectations on their spouses that they inherited from their parents growing up. You know, a wife will say something like, well, you know, my dad always cleaned up the dishes after dinner. That's how he always did it, right? Or or a husband might say, well, you know, my mom, she always had dinner on the table when my dad 
got home from work, right? What are we doing? We're taking expectations from our parents and we're imposing them on our spouse. And really, in a sense, that's a failure to leave. Instead of working out within the context of your own marriage relationship, what is going to work for you, you're taking something from your parents and insisting upon it in your new home. Basically, To fully leave our parents and to be united with our spouse means that there can't be anything in our life except for the Lord that is more important to us than our spouse. Work cannot outrank your spouse. Children cannot outrank your spouse. The church cannot outrank your spouse. God says after him that your spouse comes next. And so again, the question is, is that the case right now in your life? Are you treating your spouse right now like they are the most important human relationship that you have? Because God says that they are. And here's another question that we should ask ourselves. Am I committed to my spouse for life? Am I committed to my spouse for life? I say that because that's clearly the idea that we read here in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That, that word joined there is a word that means to, be, uh, to cling together, even to, be, to stick together to his wife. This is a word of promise. This is really a covenant Word. It shows us that marriage is indeed a covenant between a man and a woman and the God who made them. And clearly, through this language, God intends for the marriage relationship to be a lifelong monogamous commitment. In Matthew 19, there were some people who were trying to pin Jesus down on where he stood on the question of marriage and divorce and when that was okay and when it wasn't okay. And And when Jesus answered their question, he started by going all the way back to this passage that we're reading today in Genesis 2. This is what Jesus said. It says, he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then in verse 7, it's not on the screen, but in verse 7, they kind of push back and they said, well, well, then Jesus, why did Moses in the Old Testament law allow people to write out a certificate of divorce? Why did he do that if what you're saying is the case? And here's what Jesus said next in verse 8. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. What is he saying? He's saying that, in other words, divorce was never God's intent, that it is never God's best. Now, in this passage, Jesus does go on to allow for divorce, I believe, in cases of sexual immorality because of the wound that is caused from that particular sin upon the marriage covenant. Over in 1 Corinthians, we read also about an allowance for divorce when an unbeliever deserts his or her believing spouse. But these exceptions aside, the Bible is very clear that God hates divorce. Now, I did not say that God hates divorced people because he does not. The reason why God hates divorce is because God loves people. Because God loves 
marriages because God loves husbands and God loves wives and God loves children because God knows what is best and that what is best is not when a couple breaks apart but when they stay together and allow him to work in their hearts and in their home and in their family. And parents, there is no greater gift that you can give to your son or your daughter than a faithful, committed love to their mom or to their dad. By God's grace, let your son or daughter grow up knowing that no matter what, mom and dad love each other, that they will be here, that they're not going anywhere. That is so vital for kids. It's why divorce is especially painful for every child that has to go through it. It erodes the foundation that God designed to be the foundation of the family. Now certainly God can bring healing when this has taken place. He can bring healing to those moms and dads. He can bring healing to children because he is an amazing God. But it is not God's desire for any child to have to go through that, for any husband or wife to have to go through that, for that matter. That's why Jesus says, from the beginning, it was not so. And what God said in the beginning is what he wants to be ringing in the ears of every married couple in this room. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And so, friend, if you're married today, God says your marriage is to be for life. And so is that your commitment to your spouse? Are you committed by God's grace to the vow that you made before God and in the presence of many witnesses that you will have and hold them until death do you part? There's so much packed into what God says in verse 24. We've talked about what it means to leave and what it means to cleave, to be united to our spouse. But notice the last phrase of that verse as well. It says, and the two shall become one flesh. And that language of one flesh brings me to a fourth question we need to ask ourselves today. Am I pursuing oneness with my spouse? And and notice the way I phrased that question. I didn't say, am I one with my spouse? Because the answer to that question would be yes for every married person in this room. You are one with your spouse because God says that you are one with your spouse. And so the question is, are you pursuing that oneness? Are you growing and deepening in what that oneness looks like in your marriage relationship? Again, we're one with our spouse because of what God declares to be true of us. That's how God sees us. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, when he talks with husbands about loving their wives, he says that when we love our wives, we're loving ourselves. It's why he says when we nourish and cherish our wives, we're doing that to our own bodies. Why can he say that? Because we are one flesh with our spouse. And by the way, this is the only human relationship in the Bible where it describes it in these terms as one flesh. This is not said about Brothers and sisters are not one flesh. Even parents and children, as special as that relationship 
is, are, are not described as one flesh. It's only this relationship, this marriage bond that is described by God as being a one flesh relationship. And, and why is that? Remember what marriage was intended to point to. It's intended to point to the eternal marriage between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And that's how God sees us. God sees us if we know Jesus Christ as being one with Christ, does he not? He sees us as if we have been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, alive with Christ, reigning with Christ. He sees us as one with Christ forever. And so in this living illustration of that marriage, which is our own human marriages, God says, you are one. You are one flesh with your spouse. But again, the question is, am I pursuing all that that entails? Because being one flesh with our spouse means several things. First of all, one flesh means being one physically. Being one physically. Maybe that's what we first think of when we hear that language of being one flesh, the physical aspect of a marriage relationship. And that is an important part of it. And of course, notice where this falls in the sequence of verse 24. First, a man leaves his father and his mother, and then he is joined to his wife, and then the two become one flesh. God did not say that we are supposed to be one flesh with our boyfriend or our girlfriend. God did not say we are supposed to be one flesh with our fiancé. God did not say we were supposed to move in together and become one flesh and see how we like it and then decide whether or not we get married. No, God said here, and this is something that our sex-driven culture is raging against every single day, God said here that sex is only appropriate in the context of a committed relationship between a husband and a wife. But in the context of that relationship, it is not only appropriate but it is a good gift to be enjoyed, and listen, to be enjoyed often. In fact, Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians. He writes about the dangers of depriving one another, our spouse, in this area. Now listen, I, I know that we have some little ears listening, and so I'll just say this. Maybe the most spiritual thing you can do tonight, if you're a married couple in this room, is to clear your calendars. Right? Send the kids away somewhere else. Tomorrow's a day off from school. Send them away somewhere else. Because this is an important area in your life and in your marriage. And you can say amen because it is what the Bible says. All right, amen. Can I hear an amen from anybody in this room? Amen. We need to be pursuing that oneness physically. But also oneness means a lot more than that, doesn't it? It means being one emotionally. You know, when I meet with couples for pre-marriage counseling, I talk with them about the importance of talking with their spouse every day for at least 10 minutes a day. And you know, it's kind of funny because when you're talking with an engaged couple, they, they can't even imagine the prospect that one day they could go a whole day without talking to their spouse for 10 minutes. Because at that point in their relationship, they're talking to their spouse for like four and a half hours every day. And yet married couples with children in this room, is it possible to go through a whole day without talking to your spouse for 10 minutes? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, you might have some, some conversations, right, about, you know, logistics, right? Or, you know, you're going to pick up Johnny after school tomorrow, right? And then, all right, I'm going to get the girls. And you're almost like the people on the tarmac, you know, with the, you're just trying to make sure the planes don't run into each other. But that's the extent of your emotional connection. But yet how important it is to have some conversations every day where we put the phones down and we turn the TV off 
and we just talk. And we connect emotionally with our spouse if we've been in separate places throughout the day because we are one emotionally before the Lord. We also need to be one spiritually. One spiritually. You're pursuing that. Are you pursuing growing in your oneness spiritually with your spouse, reading the word together, praying together? It's important for husbands to take the lead in that. And, and I hope husbands will hear me on this. this. This doesn't need to be like an hour-long Bible study with 18 points that all start with a letter P. All right, I think sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves that this has to be more than it really is. It can be as simple as just talking at, at night about what you have both read in the Word that day and then just praying together, praying for each other, praying for your children, praying for whatever needs that there are. This is an area I hope to grow in over the years as I seek to lead my wife, Megan, better than I lead her today. But I know that in those times where we pray together and read the word together, it means so much to her. And it would mean so much, husbands, to your wives as well, to connect on that spiritual level of oneness in the Lord. Husbands and wives, are you pursuing in all of these ways oneness with your spouse that, that God has given you? Here's one more question I want us to ask ourselves, and it is this. Am I showing my spouse the grace that I have received from God. And here's why I say that. Look at what it says in verse 25. It says, They were both naked, and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. The nakedness of, of Adam and Eve in the garden is a picture of, as one person put it, the perfect ease that existed between them. The relationship was not tainted by sin because it had no sin in it, it had no guilt in it, it had no shame in it, there was nothing for them to hide. But really, this is a transitional verse that kind of sets us up for what happens next in chapter 3. Because what happens in chapter 3 is that Satan slithers his way into the garden like the snake that he is. And he tempts Eve to sin, and she sins, and Adam sins with her. And what's the first thing that they realize? Look in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They realized that they were naked, they were ashamed, and they started hiding from each other for the first time. And then God came to the garden and they began to blame each other before God. And then God started to tell them about the consequences of their fall into sin. And one of those consequences was going to be that their relationship was not going to be as easy as it was before sin became a part of it. And so church, where are we in, in the chronology of the Bible, right? We do not live in Genesis 2, do we? No, we live after Genesis 3. We live after sin has entered the world. And what that means is that every marriage in this room is tainted by sin. That every husband in this room is a sinner. That every wife in this room is a sinner. And you know what happens when two sinners get together? They sin. And they sin against one another. Here's the good news. Jesus came to do something about that sin. 
In fact, here is the truth that I want us to take in today. We live out our marriages after the fall, so they won't be sinless. But we live them out after the cross, so they are not hopeless. And because of the cross, there is always hope for our marriages and for our lives. You know, all of us in this room are broken in sin by some way. Maybe you are divorced right now. Maybe you're in a subsequent marriage and you realize maybe today for the first time that, that you didn't do everything in your previous marriage the way that God would have called you to do it. But when we become convicted of our sin, we bring that sin to the cross. And we find there that there is more grace at the cross than we ever thought possible. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Because even though we're broken people, our God specializes in taking broken people and making them whole again. In every one of our marriages today, we are, we are all broken. But if we know Christ, if you know Christ, then you have experienced the grace that came to you as a broken person. And so what do we need to do? What does God call us to do? He calls us to take that grace that he has shown to you as a broken person and extend that grace to your broken spouse. He calls you to do the same thing that in Ephesians it says that we are to do to everyone. We're especially to do this in our marriages. Look at these words. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. And I'm going to be honest with you. I meet with a lot of couples and do a lot of marriage counseling with folks. And I don't know if there is a greater need in Christian marriages today than for us to obey that verse right there. To start to show the forgiveness and the grace that God has shown to us and extend that grace to our spouse. Ask yourself that question today. Am I showing my spouse right now the same grace that God has shown to me. You know, earlier in our service, before this message, we watched a, a skit that was all about building our lives and our families upon a strong foundation. And I've said today that marriage is the most important relationship in the home, and, and it is. Now, obviously, God is able to work for his glory in a home where, where there isn't a marriage, in a home where there's maybe a single parent. He's, he's able to show himself strong in all situations, in all families, because he is an amazing God. But with that said, clearly in his word, we see that God's plan, that God's design, that what God would want for each family is that, that it would be built upon a strong marriage relationship but church in order for our marriage relationships to be strong they have to be built on a strong foundation as well if they're built on a foundation of sand and just as we saw in that skit they will crumble but jesus also said this at the end of the sermon on the mount in that same passage where he talked about building on the sand he also talked about building on the rock and here is what he said therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. 
And what Jesus says here is true, not only for us as individuals, that if, as we as individuals are going to stand, we need to build our lives on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but it also applies to marriages just as much, that if, that if we build our marriages on the rock of Jesus Christ, on who he is, on, on what he has said to us in his word, that then the rains may fall and the floods may come and the winds may blow and beat on that house, but it will still be standing because it was founded on a rock. I want to invite you today to respond to the word of God by making a commitment of sorts. I'm, I'm going to describe... Just a few different scenarios, and some of these may be applicable to you, and, and some of them not. But I want to invite you, if you hear this, and it describes you, and it describes what's in your heart today, and the commitment that you would want to make before the Lord today, then I'm going to ask you to stand when you hear this. First off, I want to ask you, if you're here today, and you are married today, and you want to commit, or you want to just express once again, just kind of renew your commitment today with your spouse to build your marriage on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his word. If that's you, I want to ask you to stand all over this room. I want to pray for us in just a moment. You're saying I'm a married couple. I want to commit my life to build on the foundation of Christ. Maybe you're not here with your spouse today. Maybe your spouse is not a believer. But you can commit today and say, you know what, as for me, as for my part today, I want to be the husband God's called me to be. I want to be the wife that God has called me to be. And I'm going to trust that God will work in my spouse's heart along the way. You stand if that's you. Maybe you're here today and you're not married yet, but one day it is your prayer that you will be. And this is your desire to say whatever age you are, as a teenager, as a young adult, to say, you know what? If that's your plan for me, if God, you desire to give me that gift of, of marriage one day, then, then I want to commit even now that I will build my marriage upon the rock of Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you stand and just remain standing as we pray for you? Finally, if you're here today, and you know this probably pertains even to many who are already standing, but if you're here today and you know someone, you know a marriage that is struggling, and you love that husband. You love that wife very, very much. But you know their marriage is struggling. You know it's struggling in part because they're not building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And maybe you just want to stand today for them. And you want to stand today and say, God, I'm standing on behalf of them. I'm standing and asking that you would work in their home, that you would even use me if possible to minister to them, that they might one day be able to build on that foundation of Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you stand? And let's pray together. Father, you see everyone standing. Father, you know why each one is standing today. You know what's in our heart. You know what's in our homes. You see everything. You hear everything. You know everything. Nothing is hidden from you. And God, you see our hearts, Father, today, that we're coming before you and we're standing before you and we're saying, God, even in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of the brokenness in our marriages, Father, we believe you are the one who restores and you are the one who heals. And so, Father, we pray for these couples that are on our minds and on our hearts today and we ask that you would work in, in their hearts and draw them, Father, if they don't know you, to a saving knowledge of you. 
you might rescue some marriages that right now look to our eyes as being beyond repair. But Father, we know nothing is too difficult for you. Lord, I pray for these standing and saying, I am praying for my future marriage. Father, whatever day that comes and your sovereignty and your good plan for me, God, I pray you'd watch over these. I pray you'd watch over their purity and their holiness. I pray they would use their single years, Father, whether that be a lifetime of singleness, whether that be years of singleness. Father, may they use that as the gift from you that you say in your word it is. And they would live their lives sold out for you. And they would wait on you, Father, if it's their heart's desire to be married, that you would bring that spouse into their life just the right time and just the right way. And Father, for every married couple in this room, I pray you'd bless them. I pray you'd help them, Father, to fight for one another. You would guard the oneness and the intimacy, the marriages in this room. That we might give a picture to the world of the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his bride, the church. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen. 